0: So this is going to be a fantastic show. Yeah, it better be, because tonight we're keeping score. Yes, and on a scale of one to ten, here's your score so far. <laughs> <laughs> one, two, three, four.
1: Hello, we are back. It's episode 79. And guess what? We have talked about it for so many years and so long. And people have been asking about this for so long. But this is finally the Crossing Deep Dive. We are sitting here and we are recording on Halloween. It is late in the afternoon for me, so hopefully no ghosts will appear before we're done today. But I do have, if not a ghost, then a somber presence with me, my co-host and partner, Tom. How are you doing, Tom? I'm fine. Fine.
2: (laughs) Deja vu, doing the crossing. exactly. Deja vu all over again. But yeah, it should should hopefully end with just that uh, brief bit of deja vu, because as you can rightly surmise, dear listeners, this would be much different than that first uh, group of episodes. Dealing with the crossing, which we've come to dub like more the dipping, dipping the toe in the tiny little pond versus the deep dives that we have now become accustomed to, which we will commence doing today on this yes. first of an epic series. And it's kind of sad because it's, it's the last the deep dive that we had to do.
1: It was the first, and it will be the last. So definitely a full circle feeling uh, here, especially for you, since you actually did the first. But I yeah. feel like I've been along on this ride. I, I listened to, of course, that first one, and really it was a proof of concept for the for the podcast. And uh, we have had seventy eight episodes of training for this one here. Seventy nine. <laughs> the crossing.
2: Wow, seventy eight.
1: Insane. And the last year's uh, deep dive, the drive to Damascus, where it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but it was one year ago. And I remember it well, because it was actually wow. Halloween then as well. And I had the same friend next to me as I do now. Nobody here. <laughs> he always seems to come out for these podcasts. So that tells me in uh, the time of year when we are the most prolific.
2: I like him. Is, is that your voice doing that?
1: No, it's a door knocker.
2: It really sounds like your voice. That's <laughs> strange. It's a door
1: knocker. Maybe I can claim some royalties for likeness.
2: I thought maybe you like recorded your voice, or it was one of those things where you could record your own voice and put it in there. But yeah,
1: no, it's a skull door knocker. So I'm holding it here, and it, it's got one of those knockers through its teeth, and it the eyes blink when you you knock, and it and it says no. <gasps> i'm gonna turn him off now he's nice. he's had two appearances that's almost more than us at this point yeah but yeah the crossing it i mean it's um we've known it for a long time we were going to do it yet uh when we connected today you said those words that i've heard many times before that man i feel so unprepared for this <laughs> <laughs> how can that be don't you have your notes from episode one and two
2: i have zero notes
1: you threw them out
2: i searched for them i'm sure they exist somewhere on my computer but i probably named them something ridiculous at the time that i can't remember so i don't know where they are
1: i'm sure it made total sense at the time
2: (laughs) probably did
1: but uh, as usual we're starting over and uh we, we kind of know how it will be. I hope we won't be kind of going as as deep and long as uh, we did last year this time. And we shouldn't. It's a shorter album. It's definitely a lighter album. It's got a lot of positive songs, but not only, but it's a different kind of uh, bleak than uh, you see on Damascus, I would dare say. So there's a, a lot of interesting things to get into, but I, I foresee this being more a celebration of uh, of big country music and and off deep dives.
2: Yes, I agree. I agree. it's it shouldn't be anything like uh <laughs> the driving to Damascus one in my opinion. No. Because there's there, there's something so uh innocent and, and joyous and it, sure, there are there are some dark subject there's some dark subject matter in some of these songs, but uh there there is. There's just this sense of adventure ahead and discovery ahead, and that's exactly what it turned out to be. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it.
1: It's a good one for us to end on.
2: Yeah, without a doubt. It's the alpha and omega of the deep dives.
1: <laughs> yeah, and some people said I hope it's not the the, the final deep dive, but well, it's the la- it's the last album we haven't done. I don't see what we could I mean we could deep dive on singles, EPs, those kind of things, but yeah, you know, unless they release more albums, we can't help but make this the final deep dive of, of an album. So
3: Well, I look
2: I look forward to to the deep dive of the WKW album when it appears. Yeah. I'm going to give I'm going to give every song very high marks.
1: Which means that they will have the same low mark or high mark. It mean then it means nothing. <laughs> that means that our combined ranking will be solely determined by me.
2: <laughs> no rankings allowed on that one.
1: Oh well. Well, you you got a lot of good feedback on uh, on those first three songs. I I don't think I saw a, a single negative one.
2: Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i just yeah it was it was good feedback but i mean i put up a poll and said like which is your favorite song on this because i'm just curious and, and somebody actually took it upon themselves to create a new entry in the poll that said i don't like any of them <laughs>
1: <So> i thought <laughs> all right well that's fine yeah Shit! all right the crossing If we can ease into this, and you know I I like easing into these things, if we're going to look at the Pure Album Factoids, it was recorded in May 1983 at the Manor and RK Studios. It was released on the 15th of July the same year. Pretty quick record, pretty quick release, not a huge gap between it, like like it was back in those days. And uh, chart-wise, it uh, was number three in the UK, number four in Canada, number eight in New Zealand, number 11 in the Netherlands, 17 in Sweden, 18 in the US, and 21 in Australia. Those are the registered charts that uh, the Wikipedia entry has. And uh, being the price researcher that I am, I I always look to Wikipedia for all my facts, (laughs) at least that one. There's a number of versions of this album, and we're going to talk about, I think, primarily the... 10 track album but we we might get into some of the uh, songs surrounding this era at the very end similar to uh, damascus we'll see what form that would take if we do that but uh, in addition to the initial lp release there was a cassette release with four bonus tracks A 1996 remaster which i think has sort of become the new album now with four bonus tracks and of course the 2012 two cd deluxe edition which also was a double vinyl for an album that is so revered and uh, a classic 1980s album, it hasn't come with a ton of editions, really. It's, uh, it's really three editions when you think about it. The, the initial one, the 96 remaster, and the 2012 remaster. And the 2012 one is uh, out of print. It's sold out. You can still find it, but it's really the 96 remaster that has become the version that you go to when you pick it up today. Yeah, uh, I assume you have all of these editions. Oh
2: everyone of course lovingly of course. preserved in in oh, packaging
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> alphabetically labeled
1: I can believe that it's wrapped in plastic somewhere that you don't know where it is
2: <laughs> I have a big country drawer that's that's what I have I just throw it all in a drawer and that's true that's a true statement nothing but big country in that drawer and I'm sure it's in there
1: Is it a fireproof drawer
2: No it is it's not anything proof
1: That I can believe. It's uh, it's
2: organization proof.
1: Organization proof. That I can also believe. (laughs) I I I refuse to think that extends just to that drawer, though. You
2: you would literally spontaneously combust if you walked into my home and saw how I treat my CDs.
1: (laughs) One day, you have to post a picture of this. (laughs) Okay. And uh, no worsening up the the reality just for that photo. I want to see an accurate, disorganized collection tom's <laughs> collection see how it really is see if it's as bad as as my mental image which i i can't believe that it would be that bad but we we'll see <laughs> but uh, to further get into this album i have actually prepared some trivia questions i'm gonna put you on the spot
2: oh all right
1: so uh, so put away all your sources please and uh, just do your your mental take after living with this album for 35 years uh, to be fair these are not questions that i would even know automatically myself all of them but just as a point of interest let's see where we end up with this oh man ready
2: i told you i wasn't prepared but i'll do my best
1: yeah you don't need to be prepared for this this is sort of off the cuff from your nervous system you know this album so i'm gonna ask you first and i am gonna give you alternatives for some of these what is the longest song on the crossing is it the storm or paraman
2: oh that's a good question um i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna say the storm
1: the storm is 621 poor man is 751 Ah,
2: see i was gonna say poor man but it seemed just too easy
1: yeah you you, you think i throw you a curveball right
2: yeah yeah Uh,
1: those two are longer by by far but uh how much longer Poor Man? is kind of surprised me when you look at the stark numbers. So again, this is not something I think about a lot, but we all kind of know those two songs are, are it, as yeah. far as long songs. But on the other side of the chain, what is the shortest song on the crossing? And I'm going to give you the two options, A Thousand Stars or Fields of Fire.
2: Mm. Oh, man. Good Lord. I'm going to say Fields of Fire.
1: Thousand stars is three fifty two, Fields of Fire is three thirty two. Ah, thank goodness. so you got that one. Yes, <laughs> they're quite a bit short. I mean, Close Action is the third short. Is that four fifteen? So yeah, that's uh, those. Were, those are they, down there.
2: They were very tight uh, songs. They were they really uh, they really tightened those things up, as we'll talk more about later. But uh, yeah, yeah, they were lean and mean.
1: And most of the songs are four minutes something. So they, uh, they have that sort of nice length to most of them. They're really well manicured songs. The next one is, it's not about who actually sang the song or who actually sang. The question is how many of the band members are actually credited with, with vocals in the liner notes. How many are
2: credited with, with vocals? Okay. Yeah. Um, and you say this can include anyone?
1: It, yeah, I mean, it's uh, who had it. And this is not about who actually sang. This is who was actually credited with vocals as part of their instruments in the Lander Notes. I think I, – I might be wrong about this, but for some reason
2: I, I seem to recall all of them being credited with vocals as well as, of course, the uh, the female singer whose name escapes me from the storm. Yeah, um,
1: all of them are credited with vocals, so that is correct yeah. So that's it. that is the most I think it might be the only one where Bruce actually has a vocal credit. Yeah. I might w- be wrong on that, but I, I don't remember that a lot. The other three sure. And what was it, what was the woman's name again? I forget. I can't believe I can't remember it. Was it Christine Beveridge? Christine
2: Beveridge, that's it. I knew it was a C. All right. Christine Beveridge. Thank you. You get a C I get a C for this. Yes.
1: <laughs> In the album credits, which of the four members of the band is credited with piano amongst the instruments they play it's only one Stewart correct vocals, guitar, Ebo, and piano and uh, I was also wondering about was the crossing ever released on an eighth track I don't think it was I'm going to say no. The answer is yes was it really? Wow. There is an eighth track of uh, the crossing, obviously in the u s
2: amazing
1: so you are you are you might have a shot at finding it.
2: I have never seen that ever. Anyone out there have the 8-track of The Crossing? Get in touch with us. We want to see pictures.
1: There's a picture of it on John's site. Okay. If you go to The Crossing and look at album cover variants, you'll find a picture of an (laughs) 8-track. So the bonus question, and the last one. How many Big Country albums do you think got an 8-track release?
2: (sighs) Well, since I would have said zero before, I'm going (laughs) to say
1: one now. Yeah. Yeah. There was no white track for Steel Town or any others, so there was one. That's kind of become the collectible thing now to get. I actually found something I don't have that I that I yeah would have theoretically been interested in, but in reality, now nah.
2: I bet that Bogan Andy Inkster has it. The white track, yeah, maybe or Stuart Menzies, the Merciless.
1: <laughs> yeah, they can maybe they have a player in the car, so they they play it to death. <laughs>
2: I wonder, a little little extra question there, I wonder what song would have been cut on the 8-track. You know how the 8-tracks, when you're playing them, they used to fade yeah. out the song and then bring it back up, which was awful?
1: Um, they cut it exactly at the 50%, didn't they?
2: they it seemed, seemed like it, yeah.
1: Yeah, to preserve tapes. Bizarre. Yeah, I'm sure some bands back in the day would uh, mathematically make each album side equal to avoid the 8-track cutoff.
2: It might have been the storm. Maybe the storm would have faded out just like it did at the Barrowlands concert. And you could have imagined <laughs> Pipers coming on as the song faded
1: away and then came back up. The disappointing thing about the Barrowlands show was that they never really picked off where they left off.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't which, finish, uh, did they?
1: They didn't. They, they stopped at that point and then the pipe band and then they went into the next song. In stark contrast to Inverts in New York, where they finished the last eight bars, after Stewart stopped it, when the audience members started fighting.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, if, yeah. So, well, never mind that. They, they, they were more experienced. Then, they knew how to, to do these things. <laughs> but all right, uh, there is another trivia thing we could uh, get into, and this was uh, this is really a pickup from the roundtable we did many years ago. I think it was episode 53. We had a roundtable for the Buffalo Skinners, and you counted the number of ha's and shah's <laughs> for that album and compared it to The Crossing. And we, as we know, at least those of us who listen to that, Buffalo Skinners actually have more of them. That album has 21, and you gave us a complete breakdown of, of the Skinners. Um, <laughs> do you still have those notes uh, for The Crossing?
2: I, I have them again somewhere, but I know, I know that um, – I do remember some of them. I know that I, I totaled 17 for The Crossing. Yeah. So The Crossing had 17, and the most, as you might expect, was In a Big Country, which I think had eight. Wow. Um, it, yeah. And, of course, it starts out with, with, with a Shah. So the, the entire recorded, official recorded studio album history of Big Country begins with a Shah from Stuart Adamson. And uh, yeah. it's very fitting. But yeah, big In a Big Country has eight, which might be the most ever. I can't remember. I think Winding Wind was a, was a close on the heels, but I think eight is the most ever. And then um, there were a couple that had maybe four, three, a couple with zero, but uh, In a Big Country was the, was the most.
1: Yeah, eight is almost half the album quota.
2: Yeah, I know. Wow,
1: that's insane. Really filled it up. And if other songs have like three or four, then certainly there are many songs with none. But you still kind of think of The Crossing as the Ha and Shaw album because it was so prevalent. And of course, live, it was added much more.
2: Yeah. And because, you know, that song was played so much, uh, that was the main song that they played. And whenever you saw them live on television, when they, if they performed live or a video, it was in a big country. So you always yeah. got those Shahs. So everyone started to think, oh, yeah, that's the band that does Shah all the time. <laughs> and that became as synonymous with them as the as the whole bagpipe thing really for a while there but uh I, I loved it it was like i said on the buffalo skinners thing i i that was one of the things that drew me to them was the were those shaws and and karate barks as we called them there was just something cool about it to me it, it, it kind of gave it that that warrior feeling in a way <laughs> you know like ah just this <laughs> expression of emotion and you know let's go so i loved it
1: yeah, expression of emotion is exactly right. It's it's very it comes from a place of passion. Yeah, and that's what makes them so endearing. It's it's not just an oh yeah, it's really uh, just uh, coming from a genuine place, and uh, we we hear it. The fans hear it. We recognize it for what it is. Yes. The album was released in nineteen eighty three and uh i know you're itching to tell us what was happening in 1983 what what were the other hits the other albums the other releases of that year
2: yes well 1983 pretty interesting year in music in fact it, for for most of us of a certain age i think uh i think this i mean for me it was 1984 because steel town and and my love of you too was really burgeoning at the time um, but that was kind of kicking in in 1983 a bit as well. But but personally speaking, I was still really pretty much a complete metalhead back then. <laughs> so I was just starting to get into this new kind of music. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way who are around our age, that it was around this time that a lot of that alternative type stuff was really coming to the forefront and becoming yeah. like the the music that really shaped who we would become as we grew older but yeah so let let me look at the charts here the the charts for um this is around the time the crossing was released so the top 40 singles for the week ending july 16th 1983 number one every breath you take by the police which we can all remember number two electric avenue by eddie grant number three flash dance what a feeling by irene Kara. (laughs) Number four, Never Gonna Let You Go, Sergio Mendez. I don't really remember that song, Um, probably for the best. Number five, Wanna Be Starting Something, Michael Jackson. Remember all that? Michael Jackson was becoming huge at the time, about to release Thriller. Um, That was in 82. Oh, Thriller was 82? Okay.
1: All right. So he just released it. So um, was that song from Thriller? Yeah, it was probably the fifth single or something. It was really milking it and doing it well. Nice. Alright, for some reason I was thinking that was off the wall or whatever came before that but
2: okay. So Michael Jackson was then in, in absolutely uh, dominating force by then. So um, number six, oh, a song I really loved and still love, Come Dancing by the Kinks. That's oh, n- yeah. nice to see them represented there. Um, number seven, very, very similar to Come Dancing by the Kinks. Too Shy by Kajagoogoo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> number eight, powerhouse madness number nine is there something i should know by duran duran and number 10 time clock of the heart by culture club ironically the band that would beat big country for the grammy later that same year
1: the nemesis
2: (laughs) yeah the nemesis so yeah, and and shortly after that, in in the next top ten, I'm not going to read all of them, but some other ones: "Stand Back" by Stevie Nicks, "1999" by Prince, "She Works Hard for the Money," "Sweet Dreams Are Made of These," "Don't Let It End" by Sticks, "Cuts Like a Knife" Brian Adams. So, like a ton of songs that pretty pretty gigantic songs that are still very uh very much remembered today. So it was an interesting time, a lot of different styles there, but you could really see that 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 um. Alternative styling was was sort of beginning to really take over, but not not a lot of guitar stuff as you'll see in that listing you know yeah. ma- maybe the kinks would be one of the few real guitar bands, and the police of course as well, but
1: other than that but 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 not with big guitar songs yeah, exactly necessarily so that, that's kind of interesting but it two comments for me really is number one it's kind of those times where even the songs we thought were bad them would be good now. And the second comment, what a stark contrast to the list read out for the Damascus era, which was crap after crap after <laughs> crap after yeah. crap. It was it was so horrible just yeah. listening to that. And that was the, the climate that Big Country was competing in at the time. And now in 83, totally different climate. They fit in um, more, I should say. But compared to most of these, Big Country were really quite a hard rock band
2: yeah without a doubt
1: they had a lot of guitars a lot of energy a lot of even though there's nothing in their music that's kind of hard rock and not to dredge up the the dreaded cruise again but uh it's kind of like bruce said they're, they're too hard for the the main market and really too soft for the hard rock market but i think in 1983 it wasn't such a problem there were plenty of bands with guitar
2: yeah definitely and and becoming more so as as you know, the years were on there in the eighties, but, uh, but yeah, so that was the, that was the chart listing. Lots of interesting stuff there.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: And big country would, big country would soon storm those charts.
1: Yes. And we will, uh, talk about that as we get into this album, we're going to do what we normally do. We're going to, uh, sort of use a timeline to frame our discussion and really see what happened in, uh, the period leading up to the actual album release and uh, slightly past that point to see what was happening. And it's just not going to be like a complete big country timeline for everything that happened. And uh, they met so-and-so and so when so and so joined the band and they went on tour here and there. We're going to frame it more in terms of the songs that were written and when things appeared and uh, really the progress of the band in recording terms. And there's still quite a lot to get into.
2: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, A good way to start that out would be this little brief paragraph or two that I found that was written by Stuart Adamson. And uh, we might've mentioned this before. I'm not sure, but um, it's called the saga of big country by Stuart Adamson. And it was written before the crossing came out. So in Mm -hmm. a way, in a way this sets the stage for what we're about to talk about. So this is Stuart's writing here. I'm just going to read this real quick. He says, Once upon a time in a land far to the North lived a young man who played music he and his friends banded together to form a close-knit group of strolling players known as the Skids. The fluctuating ranks of this gallant fellowship swept through many a foray in the treacherous valley of the shadow of stealth. (laughs) It came to pass, however, that a task was set upon the bold family, and each of its sons was sent forth to fulfill his duty. The firstborn son embarked on a journey beset with great peril, but always his spirit held true. One cold, foggy night he took comfort in the warmth of a small traveler's rest, and his attention fell upon a weary fellow, an edgy, ill-looking man. (laughs) Much given to gales of laughter, they struck up an immediate rapport, and so it was in time to come, they discovered a big country. This was to be the land of productivity and discovery, and a place where all men could visit safely. During a fierce winter, however, a great blight fell upon the soil, and the people were much troubled by the wicked witch from the west, The demon, Elsie Cooper, who filled herself with magic potions and cast an evil spell over a once fine land. And so it was that the nation was much weakened and the populace more than halved. They were strengthened by the arrival of the nomads from the south, men who had done enough wandering to know their true goals and saw them in a big country. This led to a great coming together of cultures, which was a joy to behold. And once again, the people were strong
1: and happy. Isn't that cool? I think he must have uh, been smoking one of the spliffs from the teacher. <laughs> it is very cool, though. I,
2: I'm I'm wondering who this the demon Elsie Cooper is.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It, is it Alice Cooper? I don't know.
1: Well, he does figure in the story, but it's so brief that it... Well, if it was before the release of the album...
2: Oh, wait. I get it now. I totally get it. This is incredible because he says the people were much troubled by the Wicked Witch from the West, the demon Elsie Cooper. And rem- if you guys remember... The first version of Big Country um, was kicked off the Alice Cooper tour, and then right after that, he says, "And so it was that the nation was much weakened and the populace more than halved." They got yes. re- they got rid of three guys: Clive, the drummer, and the two Wishart brothers. And then he says they were strengthened by the arrival of the nomads from the south, which of course would be Bruce and Mar- or, yeah. excuse me, Tony and Mark. So how cool is that? So yeah, the demon Elsie Cooper—that's Alice Cooper. <laughs>
1: that's That's incredible
2: that's great so we're just we're just figuring this out as we read it ladies and gentlemen so
1: (laughs) yeah lots of thoughts went into this
2: what a clever man
1: that's uh, that's from the first uh, country club isn't it
2: yeah that's from the actually that's from the second issue of the country club um there's some other great stuff in the first one but yeah that that's from the second and it's interesting because again the album hadn't come out yet and they're still talking about I don't want to jump over the timeline, but they're still talking about Chris Thomas producing the, the full length album. And, and they even say, yeah. they even say in this, that heart and soul is going to be the next single release. So interesting,
1: right. interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely.
2: But anyway, that's, that kind of sets the stage for our timeline. And, uh, I know we're going to maybe jump back a little bit before that, that whole thing by Stuart is completely relevant, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to read that and you can get a sense for the passion he was feeling, um, for the prospects of this group that, that they had put together.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is uh, probably the most endearing thing uh, I see, quotes from that time and how excited they all were about this and, and the music they were making.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: And some of those quotes will be read over the course of this uh, these deep dives, of course. Uh, but for now, we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, for the purpose of this timeline, we go back to 1981 and the day that Stuart Adamson leaves Skid's And we actually have a a date for that, uh, the 13th of April. This date comes from Bruce Watson's old website. He used to have a website, brucewatson.net. And back then, he actually put up a timeline on that website and an exact date for when Stuart Adamson left Skids Mm. during the recording at the Irina studio. And uh, only three weeks later, on that same timeline, he is listed as having teamed up with Bruce, and I have started writing and recording songs at Townhill Community, uh, Canyamero.
3: I'm Bruce Watson, co-founder of Big Country with Stuart Adams. And At that point, uh, Stuart had left the Skids for whatever reason. He didn't really tell me. He just said that, you know, just things weren't happening. But he had told me previously to that he wanted to start a band with two guitars. And um, he wanted to work with myself. And I was, like, overjoyed with this, you know. So we're up here in the lovely little village of Townhill and we're sitting on the steps of the Townhill community leisure centre and library which is a, a real important part of our history because this is where Stuart and I first started writing songs for the crossing back in 1981 and it was basically every day I would come up here and we just jammed till something came out you know it was kind of about the new romantic era And guitars were out of favour, and synthesizers and funny haircuts, Uh, they were the order of the day.
1: And at that point, the songs that are knocking about are Angle Park, Heart and Soul, Wake, We Could Laugh, Harvest Home, The Lost Patrol, The Crossing, and Inwards. Quite a few songs, three weeks in, after leaving Skids. Mm. So uh, especially after having read uh, Richard Jobson's book, the dismal time of uh, the last uh, days of what ended up being the joy album and then later in heaven making music with bruce and the songs are flowing and several of these actually ended up on the crossing so they weren't just messing about they were actually crafting strong material that uh, pointed our way forward and uh, these uh, songs all produced by Stuart and uh, bruce using a task and four track portal studio (laughs) At that point, they are thinking about future names, coming up with Angle Park, The Little Giants, and Big Country. (laughs) A lot of this is well-known stuff, but it's kind of fun to think in terms of the album, that uh, already in May 1981, we have the songs. And as we know, they recorded the album in May 1983, two full years later. So they had this around. They really um, had the time to to shine them. And one thing I found out recently, just... uh, in the discussion of uh, future band names. Uh, This is well known to all the Scots, of course, but I'm not a Scot. Tom, you're not a Scot, and a lot of the people listening are not Scots. So for the benefit of us foreigners, uh, there's a county of Perthshire, or officially the county of Perth, which is known as the big country, Mm. uh, owed to its roundness and status as the fourth largest historic county in uh, Scotland. And who knows if that name was... uh, hovering in the back of their minds and influence things directly or indirectly when they we're referring to big country as a potential name, the landscape of that County and how it looks and how they want the music to resonate big open space. So it's um, if you look again at my, my super research resource Wikipedia that that region evidently has a wide variety of landscapes from rich agricultural strats in the east and high mountains uh, to the west, southern highlands, basically. So, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting thing, especially as they ended up settling on that name. It, and as we know, that name means, means many things, and it, uh, you can put so many things into that, uh, that name. Right. But, the, but they weren't yet Big Country. They were many potential names. They were primarily writing these songs. And on the 29th of June 1981, they recorded a demo tape for Virgin Records. And uh, for that session, they had uh, Rick Buckler from The Jam playing drums. The songs they demoed were Heart and Soul and Angle Park, clearly two early favorites. These were produced by John Legge at the Townhouse Studios. And this was uh, as a point of interest around the time of the royal wedding between Prince Charles and Lady Diana, Stuart and Bruce and uh, the roadie duds went to the firework display in Hyde Park in the middle of uh, recording this tape hmm. so that, uh, that, that that makes me feel it, it makes it feel a little older than all these other things uh, seem actually because The Crossing didn't come out that many years ago but Charles and Diana they got married a long long time ago <laughs> Right. so was, it, that doesn't quite that up in my head but so be it.
2: No I know I, I totally get that.
1: Yeah. Hello
2: <laughs> oh, boys!
3: At the moment, we're in um, Elgin Street, Dunfermline. This is Kenny's Music Store. Stuart and I used to come here quite a lot. So a few of the early demos were recorded here too. And it was great fun. All the, the musicians in Dunfermline used to come here every Saturday and backstab each other.
1: <laughs> so, um, Flag of Nations up here. Uh, next, that was actually also recorded in studio and produced again by John Leckie, this time at Abbey Road Studios. So they picked the famous Abbey Road to record the glorious flag of nations. Uh, This was um, part of also a demo tape for CBS records. And this is where Clyde Parker makes an appearance at that time, known as Clyde Parker from Spizz Oil playing drums. (laughs) They also did the Lost Patrol, Wake, The Crossing and Echoes produced by Adam Seif, this time at the CBS studio. So this summer they put together a lot of demos and uh, they met up with David Allen from Gang of Four to discuss playing bass, but nothing happened. This Again, all this comes from Bruce's website, chronicling these early years on the old one. He, he really should put this up on the uh, Bruce and Jamie one, or Big Country.
2: I was going to say, it's great stuff that you've got. I, I'm sure I read all that, but I've forgotten a lot of it, so I'm glad you've, you've gotten that.
1: You can actually go to the web archive and find uh, all the pages from Bruce's uh, site stored. That's actually where I managed to pull a lot of this up. And John also has some of this on the timeline on uh, jfng.com. Nice. But there's more on the Bruce site if you go there. So, yeah, 1981, lots of, uh, lots of demoing and writing, and, and they had the material. We come to November 1981. The band they were putting together at this point, Clive Parker was still playing with them, and they had the Wisharts. Uh, Alan Wishart on bass, Pete was on keyboards. And by January 19th, they start rehearsing Pitt & Craft Park Pavilion in the Fulman. And uh, they have their first live performance as that five piece on the 4th of February 1982 at Glen Pavilion. Ian Grant has persuaded Chris Briggs at Phonogram to come on and listen to the band play in Dunfermline. According to legend, Chris Briggs wasn't 100% convinced by that gig, but he promised that the band could record a single at Phonogram so that's uh that's something else how, how have the times changed you didn't convince him but they still gave them a single <laughs> right exactly and that would never happen today
2: yeah and i remember the old days you know you you would well I, I don't personally remember them but hearing the stories of of people who would just go into record companies and audition you know they would like that's how bruce springsteen for example got a record deal he just came into the record company he had an audition they said sit down and play us some songs he did they said, all right, we'll sign you up. So, I mean, people used to do that. There's no chance of that now, but
1: uh, yeah. They definitely did that. And and here is this episode's KISS reference. KISS put all their gear into a tiny room and performed their full show to shell-shock the executives and ended up with throwing a bucket of confetti in their face. They got a record contract, of course.
2: <laughs> That's right. They did. Oh, man.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they have their first live performance as that five piece on the 4th of February, 1982,
3: at Glen Pavilion. We sent the demo tapes down to Ian Grant, who was uh, Stuart's manager at the time.
0: Stuart came down with about eight songs on a cassette in 1981. It was a charm to them, but there was nothing like they were to become. So they put a gig together at the Glen Pavilion and done firming, and I went out for it.
3: As you can see, it's a rather large venue that holds about 1,000 people, but I think we did about 230 tickets that night, but what a show. Uh,
1: that was the warm-up to the Alice Cooper tour. That was the 11th and 12th of February, supporting Alice Cooper's Armed Forces tour. According to legend, they were kicked off the tour. And at that point, Stuart was probably very happy to leave because he had just become a father. Callum was born on the 10th of February, 10th of February, 1982, that's to the day, 10 years after I was born. <laughs> so that's uh, another one of those coincidences. No. But becoming a father on the 10th and then going out and playing with Alice on the 11th and 12th, uh, when we know how Stuart liked to be home, I'm sure that was a hundredfold those days when he, he just became a father, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you don't go straight out on tour, or maybe you had to, but uh, I'm sure he, no big loss for him there to go home.
0: I represented Alice Cooper for Europe at that time, so I said, let's put big country on. And they'd only done one gig at the Glen Pavilion, so they were not exactly um, honed down, shall we say. They were very raw. And the first gig was at Brighton Centre. 5,000 people, metal crowd, they didn't go down too well. I got a phone call from a tour manager who said, your band's off the tour. <laughs> and I had then, oh my God, what am I telling Stuart? You know, because it's never good telling a band bad news, even though one has to do it. He didn't give a damn because Callum Adamson had been born the night before, so it meant that he would get home to see him that much earlier.
1: But uh, that was, of course, the end of that original lineup. They, uh, they split, they did the change, and uh, Tony and Mark joins in late February. They don't spend too much time uh, before they go into the studio again. On the 9th of March, 1982, they record a demo tape for Phonogram Records. Stuart, Bruce, Mark, and Tony, their first session, and they record Heart and Soul, Close Action, and Harvest Home. And this is produced by John Brandt at Phonogram Studio. <laughs> Chris Briggs is getting more excited by this. This is, of course, a better lineup, and they play it better, and the material sounds uh, very energized and, and, f- and fresh. Hmm. So um, so things are looking up. And in April, there's more rehearsal, there's more live gigs, and on the 12th of May, they recorded their second demo for Phonogram. This is Lost Patrol and Inverts, again hmm. produced by John Brandt at Phonogram Studios, and uh, that's enough to seal the deal. On the 22nd of May, they signed the recording contract. So this is in, in May 82, one year after Stuart and Bruce started putting all those songs together, and a full year before they actually go into the studio to record the Crossing album. So things are sort of panning out here. Uh, and in the year we have left until the recording, uh, they, they, uh, it wasn't like they meant it for, for it to be a full year. Because already in June, they go into the studio to start on that album. On the 5th of June, they go in to record with Chris Thomas. And this is uh, an interesting one in uh, Big Country's uh, history. The production team is Chris Thomas as the main producer with Bill Price and Steve Churchyard at the AIR Studios in London. And the songs they actually complete are Balcony, Angle Park, Harvest Home, Heart and Soul, Lost Patrol, Inwards, Thousand Starts, and an instrumental version of the crossing and all of us and power man mm. and these are the sessions that are expected to yield the material on the first big country album but this is not how it turns out and uh, actually the, there's a feeling of an ease creeping in and uh in late june three or four weeks after they start the feeling is it's not working out and the album and all the work they have done for it is scrapped for some reason it doesn't feel right And uh, part of the reason, in hindsight, is being given that the producer isn't as attentive as he could be. And it it turns out he's actually doing double duty. Chris Thomas is working with Elton John in Montserrat at the same time. He's actually flying back and forth between Montserrat, producing Elton John, popping back to London to check in on Big Country. And uh, they're not feeling a very engaged uh, Chris Thomas here. And obviously, he's a legendary producer. He has incredible credentials. He's done tons of uh, successful records, but uh, it wasn't working with Big Country. And there was a band meeting, including Ian Grant and Chris Briggs, and all of them agree. The recordings are suffering because they have an inattentive producer. So uh, they stop it, and uh, a lot of these recordings are not uh, released. We have a Harvest Home single. The Harvest Home does come from these uh, sessions. So that is the one we can compare. That is the one we can look at and see that's what they produced then. And this is what they produced later with Steve Lillywhite. So uh, do you have any thoughts about really that, as as little as we have to go by and, and, and that time? How do you feel about it?
2: Yeah, well, all I can say is uh, thank God they made the decision to move from Chris Thomas because, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to read a couple of reviews here of his Harvest Home single um, that came out in the first Country Club magazine. Um, and, and, you know, I'd listen to that. And if I didn't have the Steve Lillywhite version of Harvest Home or any of that sound to to go by, I'm sure I would have liked that song and, and would have thought, that's interesting. You know, I, I like that. But when you compare it to, to Steve Lillywhite's version um, and just the sound that he was able to get from the band and how he was able to focus them into becoming what they would, you know, what their brand would be, the difference is so great. You know, the chasm is so great in quality. And um, I, I think the inattentive producer is—is is, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, it sounds like um, w- what he did almost sounds like a demo type of recording. Where I feel like the drums aren't very powerful, the the arrangements mm-hmm. don't seem quite right. And uh, you know, Chris Thomas, as you mentioned, he he's worked with great great artists, and one one of the uh, ones that I'm sure the band was excited about was that he was the producer of the first Sex Pistols album. So. You he worked on that, and I'm sure that was a big influence to all those guys. So they must have been really excited that here we are working with the guy who recorded the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bollocks album, Um a classic still, and I'm sure a classic to Stuart and Bruce, at least yes. back then. So it must have been really disillusioning for them, but you got to give them so much credit for seeing that. I mean, they who knows what could have happened if they just went with it and said, you know, we don't really like this, but this is Chris Thomas he must know more than us let's just go with it and let him finish this album and who knows what would have happened to their their career I mean would they have been as successful um possibly but you never know you know and my guess is that they would not have been as successful because probably we probably wouldn't have gotten the song in a big country um, because a lot of that happened through working with Steve Lillywhite um you know Stewart often talks about the moment that he heard Steve Lillywhite's version of Fields of Fire and how that made it all click for him. And that wasn't happening with Chris Thomas. So, yeah, great decision on their part. Just a couple little reviews here like a couple sentence reviews in the first country club um which i found was very interesting that the country club magazine was was being had at least a couple issues out before the crossing even was recorded so um they they had the country club divided these reviews into three um segments one is called the unenlightened and the other is called the unsure and then the other, the inspired. So you can imagine that some of these are going to be bad and, and some of these are going to be good. But here's one. Um, this guy from uh, the NME who is always known to not like big country. And we get to see that they didn't even like this version of big country. The guy writes, I suggest that career-wise it would be to, to the big country's immense advantage to undertake a major tour of the mu- of the more obscure Dutch bars or outlying farming communities where I am led to believe they would be highly esteemed. <laughs> so that's the review of Harvest Home. Um, here's someone wrote uh, from Time Out, a London magazine. Once a skid, always a skid. And Stuart Adamson's much-touted quartet sound much like his last, which means this sounds as though it was written on bagpipes. So I find that very interesting that the whole bagpipe thing was clearly hanging over Stewart's music even before big country. And, you know, we've talked about it mentioned in the skids, but it's, it's even being mentioned there as a negative. Um, here's so here's the one that's in the unsure category from the record mirror. The guy writes Stuart Adamson resurrects the guitar and drum cinema of early skids harvest home has suitably poetic lyrics, plenty of riff rama and distinct sounds of life. Unfortunately, many of these are hidden by a careless production. Now that's a guy who's who's smart in my opinion. He could hear that and I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Now the now the country club, you know, they were in full promotional mode and they hadn't left Chris Thomas yet. So their response, I don't know who wrote it, but their response was, "How about listening to it a second time? We wouldn't like to end up saying I told you so now, would we?" <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> ironically that writer is the one who would say i told you so because yeah he's right it was careless production and and it's fine just mentioned a guy who wasn't really admittedly who who wasn't paying as much attention as he should have been um and now just to 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 sum this up um just a couple of the good reviews that it got uh here's something from gary bushel who was always uh in sounds who always wrote good things about big country he says, a stunning debut from the spectacular big country, a band whose name will come to be synonymous with vitality and vision. Country, scope, and ambition. It's interesting that he, he says countries instead of big countries. Country, scope, and ambition are as beautifully broad as the name suggests. Just as you sow, you shall reap is one of the hook lines here. If it's true, the caring, daring big country are certain to reap popular acclaim and critical admiration. And then finally, I'll read um from Carol Clerk from Melody Maker. And this talks about a, a gig that the band played in Glasgow, Scotland. And she writes music that incorporates the proud lilt of traditional folk with the assembled might of modern electrical techniques and a little of something else besides. This is a dramatic, emotional, and dynamic blend that's irresistibly unique and seductive and breathtaking. Mm. So, again, I think that's very insightful from Carol Clerk, who, you know, in later years of, of Stewart, he was always talking about how he wanted to write folk music with loud guitars and she picked up on that immediately the proud lilt of traditional folk with the assembled might of modern electrical techniques so anyway it, it, from the very beginning with that harvest home single it was getting mixed reviews and some great some bad some in the middle but uh i think we can all agree and i've never i've never once heard one person i'm sure there's going to be that one person out there who says the chris thomas version was the best man It should have never <laughs> left chris thomas and there's always that guy out there, so if that's you, just you know, just shut up, because Steve <laughs> Steve Lillywhite was clearly superior, and um, I'm glad they moved ahead. So,
1: yeah, he was. I, I will have to say that I I got my uh, head on the single version in the '90s after living with uh, the uh, Steve Lillywhite one for a long time. Oh, interesting. And and there were a few weeks then where I absolutely loved the different take because it was just so different. But that's just the, the freshness of the take.
3: Sure, you know, o- sure. o-
1: over time, you realize really what the best one is. But it shows that it had something. But uh, you know, the song always had something. When the band worked on it and they wrote it, then they, they refined it to to some degree. Yeah. But then you expect a producer to not just click record, but to perhaps take it to the next step. And that's what Chris Thomas didn't do, because yeah. he was in Montserrat eating steaks with Elton John. <laughs> and uh that's what uh, Steve Lillewhite did because he was there working with the band on everything and getting involved with uh, their sound and uh and helping them hone what the band should be. Yes. So yeah that that's that's the only way to sum this up. And and like you said to have the balls to to pull this um right o- o- obviously with the help of Chris Briggs and uh, Ian Grant they they were on the same page and when you have especially Chris Briggs on your side and he says yeah, we can do better. You know, he, he has heard the band do better. And they did some demo recordings before they went into this album stuff. So it, maybe it didn't even live up to those. I, I don't know. But they, they, whatever contributed to that feeling, they acted on it. Yeah. So there was a pause in and, the album recording at that point.
2: And it goes back, too, to what you said earlier about, you know, when how this would not happen today, you know, as far as the band and, and this pa- sort of patience would certainly not happen today with from the record company. I mean, the patience and the foresight to to say this isn't quite working. We should there's so much potential here. We need to make sure we get it right out of the gate. So let's literally let's scrap everything that we've done and start over. And and that's man, you would just never see that happen today. So now it's, no. you know, now it's just recorded as fast as you can, but um yeah, it must have been a really interesting time for them because especially for someone like Bruce and, you know, Tony and Mark had, had been around, they'd been playing with, with big names. And Stuart of course had this su- success with the skids, but um, Bruce at 21, he, you know, he, we have to ask him this, but he, he might've been thinking like, I don't know, man, this is a big name. We should stay with him. I know, I know at that age, I would have probably just gone with whatever anyone said, <laughs> you know? So yeah. good for them. And um, I think, I think one of the, the best changes that they made too was uh, the Chris Thomas, songs a lot of them were really a lot of keyboard was still really heavily involved in the mix including with harvest home and yes it kind of harkened back to some of the skids stuff like um yankee dollar and where it worked great for the skids but i didn't think it really worked for big country and it it made it made them sound too much like the skids in in a way so um yeah lily white was really able to take that and say let's not do the keyboards and let's just make a guitar. And he gave them that, that sound. So,
1: yeah. Indeed, yes. And uh, we'll end this, uh, the saga of the Scrapped Sessions with a quote. And uh, this is in the Alan Glenn book where he writes, Thomas was regularly escaping the smog of London for the blue skies of Montserrat to work on Elton John's latest opus, which caused frustration in the studio and at the label. It wasn't working out, explained Watson. As a band, we were still finding our way around the studio. So we weren't that confident about saying how we felt. Mm. Also, with Chris working with Elton John and Montserrat, there was a lack of cohesion to the whole project. So, yeah, in the end, they scrapped it and they um, moved on. But not immediately. Because uh, as we'll see as we continue this uh, this timeline, this was June. And uh, in July and August, they uh, spent the time probably still honing their craft. They played a few gigs and it's worth mentioning that in August they played some gigs in uh, the U.S. in New York, including at the, the Peppermint Lounge, which is one of the early uh, videos that we have from that time, which was sold on the Big Country site uh, at some point. And I think it's a bonus on one of the DVDs—the whole Peppermint uh, Lounge gig.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great show. I mean, it's really fun to watch and, and see them playing that stuff. Um, yeah, before it's been recorded and during that period and. Funnily enough, they also played. Um, they also played at the Nine Thirty Club in Washington D.C. Uh, at, right after that, so yeah, that, which is where I saw them in, at the. Actually, no, I didn't see them. I saw them at, somewhere else in Washington D.C. at the Buffalo Skinner's
1: tour. But uh, yeah, on Halloween. On Halloween, that's have, right. You have an anniversary today, don't you?
2: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. How did that slip my mind? But yes. <laughs> Man, what was it? Like uh Twenty five years ago. years ago. It seems just like twenty five years ago, as the oh, song man. says.
1: Twenty five is a big one, isn't
2: it? It's crazy. Yeah. Wow, that's the first time I saw Big Country on Halloween. Buffalo Skinners 25 tour twenty five
1: years ago today.
2: At the bayou. And uh yep, nice. I remember they came out and they said, Happy Halloween. As you can see, we've come dressed as Big Country. Great <laughs> greatest opening line ever. And then launched Wonderful. into all go together. But uh anyway. Exactly. No here. <laughs> and you know, I've I've got a couple of, of quick uh comments here again from Country Club from Tony Butler. He he wrote about those gigs. Um, there's the band's first gigs in America, mm-hmm. and a couple of funny little quips here that he wrote. Um I'll just read some of the better ones here. So forgive me if I uh skip around, but he says, uh, all of us were extremely excited about going to America, wondering what kind of reception we'd get, but Stuart and Mark aren't keen on flying and hated the journey. And I found that interesting, not not so much from Stuart, because when I met him in Nashville, I remember telling him that I wasn't a very good flyer either. I still don't really like to fly that much. I will do it, but I don't really enjoy it. And I remember him saying, "Ah, I don't like it either. I've never liked it, but I just got used to it. But Mark, I'm surprised about, because I thought that he was like, a huge uh, big into aircrafts and, and figuring out how they worked and wasn't his dad involved in that mm-hmm. somehow. But anyway, so he says after six hours flying came the first glimpse of New York. It was midnight in the UK, but only 7 PM in the States after the, after the formalities of customs and so on, we were greeted by our radiant, but knackered manager, Ian Grant. Then we were badgered by taxi drivers who didn't, didn't seem to understand the word. No. Then we were whisked down the freeway toward midtown Manhattan, our cab was a huge Cadillac with the best sound system I've ever heard in a car. After half an hour, we realized we were being taken the wrong way around, and the Spanish cabbie tried to charge us $45 instead of 30 when we got to our hotel. Um, then he talks about Friday. They go do a sound check. They have a day to explore. He said, uh, on the way to the gig, we stood outside the hotel and tried to catch a couple of real yellow cabs. First time they'd seen them. They're brilliant. They're so hideous and uncomfortable, exactly as I imagined them. About a mile going downtown on 5th Avenue was the Peppermint Lounge. It's quite an impressive club on three floors with video monitors, so you can watch the band playing from anywhere. And during changeovers, they show promo videos. We met the members for the first time since our arrival, and after a sound check went back to the hotel where I caught some American TV. The quiz programs are hilarious. The adverts are cheap. Channel 5 News devoted 15 minutes to Joe Jackson, who was in town, and five minutes to the rest of the news, including the 17 murders that took place in the Midtown, on our first day in new york at twelve fifteen, we arrived back at the peppermint lounge for our american debut the gig passed without major hitches and the new yorkers seemed to go a little ape shit over the group after the Apri gig pleasantries were involved or i'm sorry pleasant after the after the gig pleasantries we avoided the herpes carriers and went back to the hotel for a large <laughs> nightcap <laughs> <laughs> it looked like the u.s was going to like big country Then on Saturday, he says, everyone went in different directions. Bruce went to Greenwich Village. Mark and Stuart went to Central Park and watched the local Saturday League baseball games, which by all accounts were hilarious. I met up with a family friend called Steve who took me around the city, including 42nd Street, which is like Soho, but 10 times worse, and Chinatown, which is like the one in London. The gig was going well again on our second night when, during the final number, Mark's floor tom-tom fell on his leg, making it impossible to play properly. He promptly stopped the song, threw the drum stage left. Stewart announced this was a well-rehearsed part of the song. Five-second silence, then we were back into the song. What a great gig. And then he talks about the trip to the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. He said, we shared the minibus with the members who were, were playing with them, We had which had its hysterical moments. I was a bit disappointed with Washington. The White House wasn't as big as I thought it might be, and the outskirts of town where the 930 Club was sitting weren't very embracing either. He's right about that. that, that club was in a pretty bad neighborhood the two sets we played that night were the best of an ever increasing tightness and solidness of the group and the audience's enthusiastic response was confirmation enough we stayed at the iwo Jimu hotel in washington and driving back to new york the next day we caught a glimpse of the famous monument of the same name which we think is on some famous group's record sleeve and uh he says that he ends up by saying um we were sad to be leaving but glad to be going home that was the general consensus of opinion but as, as we were sitting in the airport bar waiting for our flight to be called we reflected on the experience and looked forward to the next adventure so once again we get this whole sense of adventure that's that's enveloping the band at this time you know the, a lot of them first time they've been in new york some of them the first time they've been to america and yeah they're seeing it all start for them so an exciting time
1: that was the mood in the band at the time so they're they're bottling it up, I think. All the stuff that happened going to America, all the other things that we're going to talk about. When they finally did go into the studio, they had that much more fire in their arsenal because of all these things and positive get-go. So maybe it, it maybe it was for the best. Maybe even if they went back with Chris Thomas, it would have sounded better just because of that. But yeah, could have been. Thankfully, they didn't. <laughs> Definitely. You get one chance, and you're off, dude. So they made it back to the UK, and on the 23rd of August, they did the Kid Jensen Radio 1 session. And this was for a long time the earliest recordings I had with the band, as I'm sure for most of us, we had those Radio 1 sessions. Uh, It was a yellow CD with those black stripes on it, an amp or whatever. Oh yeah, love that. And it had uh, the Kid Jensen sessions plus the the John Peel sessions they did a little bit later. But uh, as far as uh, the David Janssen, they recorded Harvest Home, Heart and Soul, Close Action and Angle Park. Early songs, uh, live in studio, very energetic, sounding a little different, of course, than the, what we're used to. A little closer, perhaps, to the Chris Thomas arrangement for some of them. Certainly Harvest Home is more Chris Thomas than it would be the later Steve Lillowite, which is vastly interesting and also close action very different starting with a little on the cymbal along with the guitar riff which uh, stood out like a sore thumb <laughs> yeah i got used to it and it's kind of catchy but uh, yeah that's that's one thing that still I got rid of yeah <laughs> And the interesting thing, of course, is that is the only song that they later replicated at uh, the John Peel sessions. So you have close action from uh, 12th of August, 82, and from March, 83. So you can actually chart that song's development a bit, which is uh, always very interesting to me. I, I love just hearing how things develop over time until it gets settled into a version uh, close to the album. One.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: So And uh, these sessions, of course, they are in full also included on the, the BBC box set. They open actually disc one. It starts with the full David Jensen and ends with the full John Peel. So enjoy them. I know all of you have the BBC box set.
2: Oh, certainly should.
1: Yeah, even Tom has that one. Come on.
2: Yeah, I mean, come on, man. That's that's a, <laughs> that is a prized possession. That is a that's a great great release. One of the best ever. From fantastic, just great. Yeah, so so that. great to get that and and that Radio One session. CD, the original one that you described, <laughs> that was that was great too. I remember getting that, and uh, a lot of those things were th- were the first time that I obviously heard a lot of those versions. And yeah, yeah, it, it was cool to hear. And they finally settled on the intro to Close Action, but yes, there was there were many different ways that they did that song.
1: Mm, yeah, and uh, incidentally, also later that month, we're still in August '82. Uh, that is when Tony plays on the Pretender single, back on the Chain Gang, Mm. and a couple of other assorted songs like My City Was Gone, which we have uh, touched on before. In September, they do more gigs before going into the studio on the 20th of September, once again recording demos, trying to improve on what they have, trying to uh, find a final take. This time they do Fields of Fire, Chance, Ring Out Bells, and Thousand Stars. I think this is actually the first time that uh, Chance is recorded. So new songs are popping up all the time. And Chance uh, is a big song for Big Country. It was one of the singles they went for eventually. So yeah, it's uh, obviously the longer you take before you actually go out and do the album sessions, uh, you have a potentially larger pool of songs. And they definitely benefited from that. And you already mentioned uh, In A Big Country, which I'm sure is, uh, if not the last song, I think it is the last song that they wrote pretty close to it if not
2: well it's funny you lead me into something i was going to read uh but this is the perfect time to read it because another another little country club bite here from the third issue of country club where they say recording update and this is after the the fields of fire single had been released so we might be jumping ahead just a bit but he's but they say a brand new song title not yet released will be the follow-up single to fields of fire issued around the end of april or beginning of may You won't have heard it in the live set, so keep your ears and eyes peeled for the first radio play or a release date in the music press. It is being produced by Steve Lillywhite, who also produced Fields of Fire. He's recently had a number one album with War by by U2 and has also worked with Joan Armatrading. And then they say later, in the last issue, we said Chris Thomas will be producing the album, but for various reasons, this was not possible. The band is certainly very happy with Steve. So there you go. I, I think that's the very first mention of uh, what would be in a big country. So uh, that's that's mm. really cool. That, that, that kind of gives me a little bit of chills reading that because it's it's such it's got so much uh, historicity associated with it, especially when they say you won't have heard it in the live set. So keep your ears and eyes open or peeled.
1: <laughs> but of course, here on after you'll always hear it. Yeah.
2: And it's funny, like they hadn't even played it live and it was brand new. And yet they knew that it was going to be the next single. So they knew they yeah. knew the but I 'm jumping ahead of us of ourselves, but uh, anyway,
1: yeah, but, but of course they knew I mean, sometimes you just know right, sometimes you just sit on something that is just right and it feels right and and you got it, and you know you have it, and you're itching to throw it out there, and of course it's going to be the new single. the hit, music history is littered with examples of so they will say that's a hit, that's right, and they just know it, and that song was a hit, yeah,
2: and it made Steve Lillywhite cry, so anything that makes Steve Lillywhite cry, you know is gold. <laughs>
1: I wish they had written something that made uh, Peter Wolf cry, <laughs> but instead he made everyone else cry. <laughs> I was just going to say, that. yes, yeah. Well, given the choice, I'd, I'd send it. I'd send tears in that direction. But anyway, <laughs> that takes us to the 17th of September, the actual release of the Harvest Home single, and we already covered some of the press write-ups on on that one. So we'll just wrap up this one with uh, it was number 91 in the UK charts. Obviously, a massive disappointment. Yeah. Wasn't what they expected, wasn't what they hoped for. But they already kind of knew that this wasn't the optimal. And that leads to the question why did they throw something out? I I guess they felt they had to do something because the band had been going for a while at this point, nine months into actually the recording contract.
2: Yes. Yes. And I, I missed that. But was that so? Was the single released after they decided to not work with Chris Thomas anymore? Yes. Okay,
1: it was re- September seventeenth. It was released, and that's seven months after they wrote the recording contract. So maybe they felt they had to.
2: You're right. That is really interesting, though. Yeah, they, maybe that's what it was that they that they wanted to get something out there. But in a way, that sort of goes against their whole reason for for dumping Chris Thomas to begin with. You know, get it right before we put anything out.
1: Yeah, they might have felt that was the best one they had, and that it was uh, workable in the state they had. I don't know. That that's pure speculation. But they had that one, and on the seven-inch they had um, "Balcony" on the B-side. Mm-hmm. On the twelve-inch they had "Balcony" and "Flag of Nation" on the B-side. So a bit of quirky B-sides for, for the band as well. Yeah. So, um, but ninety-one isn't a good uh, result. I mean, even even "Fragile Thing" with the Folds Fiasco did better than that.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So it, this this did worse than the Folds Fiasco.
2: And I'm sure that was validation for their decision, you know, to not continue to work with Chris Thomas, but, um, yeah.
1: Yes. But I, I doubt that we sitting there going, yes, we proved our point. Right. This right. Is, because, it's kind of uh, tricky.
2: Yeah. Because a lot of times, you know, and again, and especially we're comparing yesteryear to today, but like today, if you fail immediately, you're, you failed forever, you know, you're not going to mm-hmm. get another chance. And, and it was maybe somewhat like that back then, you know, but, um, People had more patience, but yeah, so it was kind of risky to release something that was not going to chart because that's the first impression that that radio would get and the industry would get. Oh, this big country, their first single failed on the charts. Why should we play the second one? So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's an interesting move. I never it's funny because I never really put that together until now that 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 was released after they decided that Chris Thomas wasn't right for them. Yes, that would be an interesting question to ask someone.
1: Oh, very interesting. Uh, I suspect they needed product in the shelves. Uh, they were getting uh, word out. people were noticing them, and they didn't have a single out even. Yeah. so at least this gave them one piece of product that people could pick up, and I think the fact that uh, Chris Briggs supported them and supported their withdrawal of the sessions kind of uh, it was in the cards that there would be a better session. So after the release of that single, uh they did some um, they actually did a TV show, TVSW, I don't know what that is, but uh, they did that, they did some university uh, shows kept playing. And on October the 9th, they recorded uh, a video or they shot a video I should say for Harvest Home. And this was shot in Wapping in the yeah we we know where it was we've seen the video all of us they end up in that barn slash power plant slash (laughs) factory strange building Uh, and uh, there are two versions of this video the first shot matches the chris thomas version but as soon as they got the Steve Lillevite version of Harvest Home, the video was re-edited to fit that version. And that would be the version from there on out. So there are two versions, and they are slightly different in their edits. So if you're super keen, which I can't imagine anyone listening to this thing is super keen about Big Country, <laughs> it might be worth checking out uh, those, those videos and seeing both versions. Definitely. In uh, October, they went on uh, a tour of Scotland. They played 10 shows in 12 days. And then in November, they played uh, England six shows. So massive tour. This is still a band with no album out. They have one single at this point. So there's no physical product, which actually meant a lot those days, where you could actually have a substantial income if you had a physical product and uh, an audience wanting to pick it up. In December, they support The Jam. These are high-profile gigs at Wembley Arena. It's five shows of their Dig the New Breed tour. So um, Five Nights Supporting the Jam. Good fit, I should think. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the year, they close out on December 16th with an appearance on TV on Whatever You Want, where they play Angle Park, Heart and Soul, and Lost Patrol. Let
2: me just jump in there real quick. Um, I've got a couple words from Stuart on the Jam shows, and uh, I just wanted to read those real quick. Interesting thoughts from Stuart on playing with, with uh, that, that jam show. Those jam shows, too, were the final shows for the band at the time. And uh, Big Country was invited to open for them. And this was the the jam's farewell show at at Wembley, the last one. And Stuart wrote something in the country club about that experience. And it's interesting to hear him talk about giant stadium shows at this point in his career and um, what he thought about it. But this would just give you a little more sense of of, of that show. And he says to me, places the size of Wembley are not the ideal situation for a group and their fans to say thanks to each other. I have a lot of respect and admiration for what Paul Weller and Bruce and Rick have done and totally agree with a lot of Paul's ideas on rock and roll. Anyway, it went like this. We would come on stage, unable to see the people at the back of the hall, a 100 yards away at least, and try to involve everyone who had never heard us. But it's hard to treat people with respect from both sides in that situation. As we were playing, you could feel the sound being swallowed up by the demon god aircraft carrier. (laughs) We played, and a lot of people seemed to appreciate what we did. Best songs seemed to be Angle Park, Close Action, Poirot Man, and Fields of Fire. We did no encores, partly because it wasn't our gig, and partly because we didn't feel the situation was right. These weren't our people, but the jams. I have seen the jam a few times since they began, but have never heard them sound so emotional on stage for about three years. The crowd were great, and the band let no one down. The sound was abysmal most of the time especially at the back of the hall, but that wasn't important. This was the climax of a group, and it was very moving to know they would be splitting up afterwards and not allow themselves to be taken for granted. Um, And then he says, uh, the highlights for me were Boy About Town, Pretty Green, Ghosts, Move On Up, Dreams of Children, Bruce and Paul sharing microphones when Paul's went faulty, Paul wrecking his guitar in sheer passion, and the crowd. I just don't think it should have been Wembley. Cheers, Stuart Adamson. So it's interesting seeing his comments on uh, another band that he liked, and and that whole experience. I, I would imagine that must have been their first uh, their first show at, at such a such a on such a large scale, and they would be yeah. playing Wembley at some point later too. But uh, yeah, interesting.
1: They would, and they would get more used to the larger stages. But uh, they uh, they always sought that closeness, and perhaps more so in the early days. Not that they lost it. But they were more adaptable to different uh, scenarios, I think, right. as the years went on. Right. But the uh, huge shows, that would be one to see them, I guess. That would be awesome. I know. I know. Yeah. But this takes us into 1983. This is the year when, uh, when things come together, when things happen, and when we start getting albums, finally. And the year starts, recording-wise, with Steve Lillywhite. His name has come up. He has been drafted. And basically, he has been given one chance. They don't go into a full album situation with anyone after the previous fiasco. They gave him Fields of Fire. This was his target. Record the band. Make it sound awesome.
4: So I'd probably done either two or three U2 albums at this point. I hadn't done Simple Minds yet. That was to come in 84 because that was when I met Kirsty on a Simple Minds session. Mm-hmm. The man who signed Big Country was a very good friend of mine, a man called Chris Briggs, and they had gone into the studio with a very well-known producer, uh, a man called Chris Thomas, who had worked with the Sex Pistols, Pink Floyd, had even done some Beatles stuff back in the day. Uh, is a fantastic record producer. But you can put the best studio with the best band with the best producer and not come out with the best record. And the results, to be honest, were not what Chris Briggs wanted for his, uh, for his new signing. Yeah. So he called me up and said, Steve, look, we've got this band. There's something about them that I really love, but the recordings just sound sort of flat. Can you go in and do a single with them? So I said, sure, you know. And we went in and we just did one song. We did Fields of Fire.
1: So Steve uh, got into this and... Uh... You're not the only one with quotes. I have a couple of quotes from uh, Steve Lillywhite. Nice, and maybe maybe you have the same ones. You seem to uh, to be on the money with your quotes today. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, I, I've got no, I've got
2: no Steve Lillywhite quotes. So uh, yeah, all right, go for it.
1: Well, it was very interesting because he had just finished recording U2's breakthrough album War, and uh, when you look at what he did in 1983, he actually had. Uh, three albums out three huge albums not just war and the crossing but also he did the last great simple minds album sparkle in the rain in that order war the crossing sparkle in the rain three albums that really defined the big music of the 80s Mm. so that that, that's a track record for you right there and that's also a man hitting his uh, stride boy i'll say and he was uh, reminded of this in an interview. And uh, even he was very surprised when it was laid out like that. And he just said, wow, I was good in those days. <laughs> <laughs> with, with that track record, I, I, you're allowed to say that, I think. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. So, um, yeah, this was a man that, um, unlike Chris Thomas, didn't have the same career behind him. He had definitely hits, but there were more things he had done very recently, or even then, at the point in time. Uh, So he was uh, really, they hit him at uh, he was going up the same way Big Country was. And I think that is a good sort of marriage, to have a producer with the same career trajectory as yourself, in the same uh, mind space, in the same sort of wanting to prove yourself, the same fire to succeed. I think that that does something. So they they found each other at exactly the right uh, time. So he did uh, Fields of Fire, and uh, the quote I had is basically, we decided to give the song this great, spirited, uplifting feeling. And uh, he speaks, interestingly, of Chris Thomas' recordings, and he said, Chris Thomas's recordings were flat and uninteresting, and we managed to get something exciting going. Mm. And, uh, and from that, Stuart went off and wrote In a Big Country. I remember playing Bono the demo of In a Big Country. I was so absolutely knocked out by it. I felt very honored to have inspired that. And he also went on to say that Chris Thomas was one of his heroes. So it was actually a motivation for him to go and do better what Thomas had did.
2: Very interesting. And especially the choice of the word flat, which I think is the perfect adjective for for that production. That's exactly what it was, flat.
1: Yeah, flat is, is actually quite accurate. Uninteresting is actually a little stretch for me. I would never actually call it uninteresting.
2: Yeah, I agree with you.
1: But it, but uh, I, I would instead say it reeks of unrealized potential.
2: Yes, yes. And there's just something about the sound. You know, Steve Lillywhite. You know, no pun intended. Did make it sparkle, and uh, mm-hmm. it did not sparkle in the Chris Thomas version. But you know, when we get into the song by song breakdown, I'll talk about some things that I blasphemously didn't like about what what Steve Lillywhite did. Or let's let's put it this way: not necessarily didn't like, but thought maybe. Uh, he could have done things maybe a little differently on some things and uh, fields of fire is like one of those, even though that's a huge song for me, but uh, you know, he did a lot of different things to that song. He he changed the key, which, which in turn made all the guitar parts have to be changed and played differently than the way they had been playing it. But you know, you can't argue with success. And that was a successful song and the band loved it. And again, just to, to re- hear that quote, and to see, you know, what I was alluding to earlier, and to, to see it in that quote confirmed that that sound of of fields of fire and what he was able to get the band to sound like is what inspired Stewart to go off and write in a big country. So, yeah, yeah, amazing, uh, amazing.
1: There's a lot you can talk about, and uh, you're bursting at the seams to get into the deep dive. But we'll save the song discussion for for when we get to that. But uh, they did this trial run, and everybody loved it, and. Um, As you say, you know, it was that that feeling and and coupled with success because Fields of Fire, I mean, for for all the the hoopla and the glory surrounding in a big country, Fields of Fire was the biggest hit in the UK. Mm, So after they had that single in the can, they did a video and uh, we uh, have actually uh, told the story of that uh, video recording that's in our music video countdown so we won't go into detail but they shot the video in Peterborough and Chablum directed by Clive Richardson and after that they didn't rest on their laurels they recorded demos for In A Big Country at that point the song had made its appearance and they did The Storm which I also think is a new song at this point Mm -hmm. and uh, Big City at the recording studio in Croydon February, the 18th of February, we're moving closer and closer. This is where the Fields of Fire single is released. So not a long time between uh, finishing the recording and putting it out there. That was pretty much expressed, put out there. Finally, we have a product that's representative, that we're proud of. And uh, with Angle Park as a B-side, which is also a step up, I think, for B-sides, as far as uh, having something good to offer there as yeah,
2: well. Yeah, without a doubt.
1: Yeah. February... They did the John Peel Radio 1 sessions, the second half of the Kid Jensen ones on that uh, yellow black striped disc. And this time we get close action, inwards, thousand starts, and Poroman. This is close to uh, getting ready to record. At this point, they know that Steve Lillewite is the man. So uh, in March especially, when Fields of Fire reaches number 10 in the UK charts, they do some gigs in March, and on the 4th on at the University of Kiel, is where In A Big Country is jammed for the first time in front of an audience. Mm. It doesn't have its final structure, but it's got more or less the components. So that is when the song has its debut. And that's, uh, that's awesome to have an actual date and a place where that uh, was first aired public. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And then they're getting ready to redo an album with Lillivite. And that takes us to May. And we're starting to record here the first album for the second time. This time at R.A.K. and the Manor Studios. Uh, The team is Steve Lillevite producing, Will Gosling engineering. And immediately this feels right. It feels much better. And I have some uh, interesting tidbits about this time. And uh, also the album uh, in general, which we can uh, look at here. One point is that uh, they had the families there during the recording. Hmm. I think I I can't recall if they did that other times. They certainly didn't for Steel Town in Sweden but uh, at the Manor Recording Studios in the heart of Oxfordshire countryside. I have a quote from Playboy magazine 1984 provided by our lovable bogan the Inkster who has a complete Playboy collection. There is no beauty here, just the stench of spine and beer. <laughs> and the quote says, at the Manor Recording Studios in the heart of the Oxfordshire countryside where they're working on their debut album, the atmosphere is comfortable and relaxed, staying with them are Stewart's wife Sandra, their toddler son, and Tony's pregnant girlfriend Jackie.
5: Hmm.
1: I'm beginning to realize that you don't see much of home life when you're in a successful band. Admits Tony, I know if I get carried away by it all, my family will suffer, and I don't want that to happen. So recording here with them really helps me keep my feet on the ground. So I'm sure that was nice for them to to be able to uh, to combine the two, I and mean, that's probably the best of both worlds for Stewart, especially having their family there, and having the band there and making music. thats That's got to be some sort of bliss, sort of missing nothing, really. Yeah, situation it for must him. have
2: been. Just fantastic.
1: So that, uh, that, that's awesome. And that that must have spilled over into the album. The album is is happy. Even the sad songs have that a band on fire, feeling good, confident kind of thing going behind there. So that's uh, that's probably why even songs of disaster they don't they don't seem to come from a place of desperation really even though yes they are yeah so that's that's a hard one to pin down
2: exactly well it's it's for me it's kind of like it comes back to the illustrations that they ended up using for the album which were from those boys own books and just that whole you know when you when you're a kid and speaking as a as a man and as a as a boy you know you can you can hear these tales of doom and gloom and these things that have darkness in them but being young and innocent you're excited by it and you just somehow know in your head that it's all going to be okay or it's all going to work out or the hero's going to come across the hill to save the day and that's kind of the feeling that i always got from that album it's just it's it's sort of like it's got that young yeah idealism that even yeah. though there are dark things happening you know that there's there's just this positive feeling that like you're going to fight them you're gonna approach them you're gonna take them on whereas as you get to driving to damascus you know it's it's very different it's like you've been beaten down You're f- full full adult now has gone through the the realities of life but um you know in this first one even though there were dark things there they they did have that sort of boy's own feel to even the songs not just the illustrations yeah where it was like a, a story that was exciting and you knew it was going to work out somehow
1: your example of the boy zone is, is actually so good, and I can use one of them as an example. There's a guy standing under an avalanche. Right, right. And, and you know, I for some reason, when I look at that, I don't think, oh my gosh, he's going to die. I think, wow, this is quite an adventure. Right, right, exactly. There, there's a confidence underneath it all that, uh, you know, a, a determination to, to keep at it.
2: Yeah, it's it's like how's he going to get out of this rather than yes rather than oh he's dead. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> to me, it's a cliffhanger. It's not an ending.
2: Right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's good. And you know, yeah, yeah I do. I did manage to dig up a, a not real well, maybe a couple of Steve Lillywhite quotes in here, but there there's again from the Country Club some a couple lines about the atmosphere of working on this with an interview with Steve Lillywhite and a couple of interesting things he says here that I'll read. It says. Steve takes his work extremely seriously, although it's not always obvious to watch him. He laughs and jokes and drinks with the lads, but at the same time, he's not frightened of voicing his opinions or making unpopular decisions. And let's remember, Steve Lillywhite was only 28 years old at this time. So he explained, I'm not a dictator, and I like quite a loose atmosphere in the studio. If people are enjoying themselves, they are going to perform better. I have to make sure I'm able to get on with a band before I work with them because I want to make a good job of it. My job is to bring out what is inside them, and when I first meet a band, I'll go through each member individually and work out their weak points. It may not be anything to do with music. One person might be nervous and unsure of themselves, and another may have a lot of good ideas but find it hard to express them. In that way, I'm a bit like a psychiatrist because I have to decide how best to treat the individual. When he was first approached to produce Big Country, Steve admits he was dubious about the strength of Stewart's voice, but he's now convinced he's a good frontman. Steve said, I did like the experience of the rhythm section. A lot of Tony and Mark's expertise is lost at a gig, so I was keen to work with them, and I'm very much into guitars at the moment. I reckon a lot of bands have overdosed on synthesizers. Big Country proved that guitars can be modern and vital to the music scene. He first worked on the Fields of Fire single and built up a good relationship with the band. Steve added, the single went well, so I suggested we go in and make a killer of an album together. Now the crossing is complete. Steve probably won't listen to it for months. I do tend to get paranoid after finishing an album, he says. I can't listen to it without picking holes. So, yeah, interesting Mm -hmm. insight of how he worked and sort of what he thought. And I'd always heard that before, that he was skeptical of Stewart's voice, and I think other people were as well, because it's such a different voice, than the traditional rock star voice. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's great that once again, you know, instead of, instead of just saying, no, this guy can't sing, he he doesn't have the, the quote unquote stereotypical voice. We need someone else. Instead of doing that, they work with him. They said, let's work with the guy. He's writing great lyrics. He's writing great songs. Let's find, you know, a way to, to get this into the, into the sound. And they, they did a great job with him. and, you know, his voice never was, St- stereotypical rock voice or the traditional rock voice, but it's something that was so unique and and loved by all of us. And uh, thankfully, they took yeah. the time to work with that and didn't just throw it to the side. So,
1: I can understand initial skepticism a little bit because uh, when you think back at those times, Stewart was known as a guitar player in a different band, right? And suddenly, there was a new project where the guitar player was uh, stepping up to take on vocal duties. Uh, as a producer, you're always a little wary of that. We, of course, have the the benefit of knowing exactly what Stuart can do. And uh, as uh, you you read yourself, once uh, Lillywhite found out, he was comfortable as well. So I just see it as a, as an initial, uh, here comes another guitarist would be frontman type thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it but but it wasn't like that at all. And uh, I'm sure Stuart would be the first to be aware of uh, whatever weaknesses he would have had. As a singer and/or frontman.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: But it worked out well, and uh, th- that's a given at this point. <music> Have another trivia question for you.
2: All right.
1: Because this also comes from uh, Andy Ingster's vast Playboy magazine collection. <laughs> th- that was in 1984, so at that time they were talking about Steel Town. And they were talking about Steeltown versus The Crossing and overdubs, hmm. which is which is an interesting thing for the band. And uh, in the context of Steeltown, looking back and evaluating these albums against each other, how much more or less overdubbed would one of them be over the other? And which one do you think is the most overdubbed?
2: Well, I mean, I, I would naturally want to pick The Crossing as being the l- less overdubbed than Steeltown because of what we know about the guitars and all that. Uh-huh. But... But knowing how Steve Lillywhite Lily worked, and we'll talk <laughs> about this.
1: But he worked on both of them.
2: Yes, I know. But I, 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 think, I think maybe he toned it down a little bit on Steeltown, believe it or not. I think probably the, it probably has more guitar overdubs on Steeltown. But as far uh, as overall overdubs, I'm going to say The Crossing.
1: You say The Crossing has more overdubs.
2: Yeah, that's my, that's my guess. Okay. But you're not sure. Well, if it does, it certainly doesn't sound like it, you know, but it's, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, I know Lily White did things and we'll talk about this, like, like had Mark record each drum part separately, you know, for songs. So if you, so if you count those as overdubs, then I would say they would probably add up to being more, even though I think the overall sound of the crossing has more space in it than Steeltown, of course. But um, yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know, actually know how they count overdubs, and I, I wouldn't uh, think that individual drum tracks is the same as overdubs. Yeah, I would. I would neither. To me, that's just a meticulous way of recording drums. But uh, the the actual quote on overdubbing is: Stewart was talking about Steel Town and added the following bombshell: Stewart insists the band actually did a lot less overdubbing on the new record Steel Town <laughs> than they did on the Crossing. <laughs> wow,
2: <laughs> man. That is, that is shocking.
1: I mean, you you guessed it right, but to me, it's actually, uh, it is a surprise.
2: Yeah, and, and I guessed it mainly because I figured that you wouldn't be asking that question if it if it wasn't a surprise answer.
1: Yeah, it was a bit leading, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, but, you know, I could sort of see it just because I've read so much about how Steve Lillywhite worked on that album, but yeah, it certainly doesn't sound like it. I mean, you know, the guitars, the, the sound of Steel Town sounds so dense, so much more dense than The Crossing, but, you know, maybe... Yeah. I don't, I don't know. We'd have to get further into that and what they what they consider an overdub.
1: Yeah. No, but uh, the, the albums are comparable in that regard because you have the same producer. They were recorded not too far apart. But, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that, that's interesting to me. And as we get into this album, I'm sure we're going to keep a fresher open for, for all the numerous overdubs.
2: Yeah, yeah. And just as a little note, I'd love to see that article printed from Playboy. That sounds interesting. Yes.
1: I have, those, uh, I have those clippings. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'd love to see it.
2: Yep. All right, you will. Thank you.
1: So, yeah, lots of stuff happening. Good times. A totally different experience from one year prior. And uh, they finished the album, and it sounds awesome. And so to gear up for release, they do TV performances. Actually, quite a few I have 12 TV performances in May alone, wow. which is uh, Top of the Pops, The Switch, Cracker Jack, GMTV, Channel 4 Live, etc., etc. They, they are all over the place performing these songs, mainly Fields of Fire and uh, and In a Big Country, which is released as a single on May 20th. That is their third single, the second Steve Lillivite single, and uh, the final single before the album is actually released so the b-side to that one is all of us yet another gem of a Mm b-side and uh, for other formats you also get heart and soul along with remixes and single edits so in a big country did well it did not do better than fields of fire but it did well and it uh, definitely was a good one to sell them on all these tv performances and set up the album release and in june they start the crossing the country tour and uh, shortly put, they're on the road for the remainder of the year and well into 84. Yeah, yep. uh, They do some final overdubs for the crossing at uh, RAK Studios in July, which really was last minute because on the 15th of July, the crossing is released. And it's released with blue and red covers. And it hits the UK chart at number four. Nice.
6: Hi, guys. It's Stu here from the Trading Post. And uh, my little take on the crossing... Maybe a wee bit different from everybody else's. So I'm going to talk about the releases rather than what's on them. So there was me, a 15-year-old laddie, um, saving hard on my paper round money because I wanted to buy Big Country's first album. And um, I went to Woolworths in Dunfermline on the day it was released. And uh, to my horror, there was more than one colour to buy. But, well, I went for red with the gold writing. And I've still got it sitting in front of me just to give me the feel. Um, so I got home took the vinyl out and to my horror the centre piece of the vinyl was blue why was it no red still ask that question to this day the green one should have been green as well but there you go um, anyway 25 years later we had the release of the double vinyl absolute quality, um, probably one of the best vinyls I have, I really like the feel and the look of that, It's uh, superb but then what about the releases from The Crossing, the special ones uh, I used to go down to uh, a record store in Dunfermline, most nights after school, Europa Music. And um, the guy there, Stuart, aptly named, used to keep records back for me. He knew he was a massive big country fan. Went in one evening and he goes, wait and see what I've got for you here, Stuart. And lo and behold, there it was, uh, Fields of Fire, um, picture Disc. Um, Days before internet, anything like that. You just never knew what was getting released. And you used to get the excitement of going into a record store and either seeing something on display or... If the record keeper would keep it behind for you, that was just a great feeling. And then the Chance Picture disc, I was on holiday in Great Yarmouth and um, browsing about a bit of record store and then I came across that. Never knew it existed. And that's um, uh, probably my favourite picture disc. It's an absolute cracker. Then we move on to T-shirts for the crossing. Goodness, the classic Fields of Fire one. Um, I wore mine to death and I got thrown out many, many years ago, full of holes, and rotten. But I managed to secure one about 18 months ago again. Uh, it's a topper, um, and a big country one. Um, I'm sure it just came in grey and white. Um, again, another classic. And then a couple of years back, they released the Lost Patrol one, and um, that's I put pictures of that on the site. Um, it's certainly a very popular one. Um, anyway, there's a quick resume of the crossing from me. Not talking about the music at all, just about the the fabrics and so on around about the music, uh, the the releases. Cheers.
1: Uh, We'll jump to the fourth and final single from uh, The Crossing, which is Chance, was released on August 26th. That one had uh, tracks of My Tears as the B-side, and also on extended formats, The Crossing, the would-be title track. uh, One of the better ones from the session, an awesome song, like so many, like everybody Mm -hmm. from this time. Chance also did well. Uh, We'll talk more about that when we get to the song Deep Dive. It uh, eclipsed any other single from uh, The Crossing. That would be the strongest performing song in the UK. As you get to other territories, the story is different. Right. And in a big country was the most popular song and still the song they are remembered for in many areas, including America. Right, right. So that's it. And now we're getting sort of into the touring days of The Crossing, which is not really scope for this deep dive, but we can mention uh, quickly, just uh, sort of rehashing this good memory of playing the, the Reading Festival on August 26th. That is the same day that the chant single was released uh, as support to The Stranglers. And this is the day that we talked about in episode 26 of The Great Divide, when we covered the BBC box set. That show is on the box set where the band suffered burns due to the intense pyro explosion. <laughs> that was a fun story. <laughs> go go listen to episode 26 if you want it, because we have done that before. Right. And later the, in the year, to, to round off the timeline, they do the King Biscuit Flower Hour show, New York City, at the Reds, the 23rd of October, 83. A much-released uh, live show from 83. And, of course, we end the timeline with the show at the Glasgow Barrellands on the 31st of December. Yep another King Biscuit release, which is confusing. There actually was two King Biscuit releases from 83 for a short time, but uh, mostly recently it's known as The Homecoming. And that really is the, the timeline. This is really the story of the songs and the demos, and uh, when things started appearing, when things were demoed, when things were released, and uh, also some scrapped things, which uh, really the history of Big Country could have looked very different if they had gone with the, the Chris Thomas uh, recordings. That is really the big discussion point of of this time yeah without a
2: doubt without a doubt it's very interesting and of course uh one one of those gigs you know during that time which was interesting too was uh gigs with you two. um i think it was at the hammersmith maybe where they when they came when stewart came on stage and mike peters came as well to sing knocking on heaven's door Uh, bono invited them up and you know that was really that moment was really setting the stage for the sort of the this new type of music what they called the big music that was going to come yeah. and invade you know the, the the west the western world the world at large really but especially america and the uk and you know at that point those three representatives the bands that they represented were were um you know we had one the veteran which was u2 which had been around for a few years already and was just now getting gigantic but then big country coming up the alarm coming up and these guys all on stage together at at the time they were they were definite peers uh, in the business and that was kind of foreshadowing what was to come so yeah great great moments there great moments
7: this is mike pierce from the alarm and i know i know Stuart adamson's in here somewhere i want him up here You can pass him up on your shoulders if you want. Here he comes, come on! (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, are the new breed. Something special for you. I want to say something. You know, we're very, very proud to have an LP that entered at number one in this shots. But, what means more to me than that, has been the way this tour has done, and the way these people are. Because there is, what's happening up and down our country, the feeling, the positive, the whole feeling, it's just—it's more than any other band could ask for.
1: it was a fun time to be around and and follow all this very exciting and what you say about that uh, pulling everybody up on stage it's sort of cemented a kind of brotherhood amongst the fans Uh, like uh, the bands weren't rivals they were sort of all fighting the same cause yeah. and and that uh, endeared me to uh, to the non big country bands as it were I, I definitely came to big country first and through that feeling of not really being rivals but really part of the same movement that opened the door for acceptance to those other bands much quicker than it probably would have otherwise
2: yeah definitely and you know and i've talked about this before but i think it's worth mentioning again for me it's like for me it was you too that was the band that i was into first the the, the first band that was really different from the, the hard rock stuff, Kiss related stuff, other stuff like that that I'd just been solely focused on, and like I said in the very first show, it was eleven o'clock TikTok that that song hearing that on the radio, just like awoke something in me, and I just thought I'd never heard anything that sounded like that before. What is this? I don't even know if I like it or not, but I, I had to hear more. And funnily enough, when In a Big Country came out, I really I didn't that song didn't bowl me over as a kid. Listening to that. I remember, I, I kind of remember distinctly hearing it. I, I remember what I was doing when I was listening to it. I, I used to play with like these little HO scale soldiers and, uh, made by a company called Airfix. Maybe you guys, yeah. some of you guys remember them. I had like just hundreds of these little soldiers and what I would do is I would like, set these big battles up on my bed i would usually world war ii battles you know i'd have the germans on one side and either the british or the americans on the other side sometimes the japanese would get in there and i would set these battles up for like a long period of time and while i was doing that i would always listen to the radio and i would listen to things and i would listen to like whatever the top 40 radio at the time and i remember doing that one day and hearing in a big country and thinking that's an interesting song, kind of like the way I felt when I heard 11 o'clock TikTok. But for some reason, it just didn't really it just didn't really connect with me like it did for many other people. And for me, it actually was Fields of Fire that, that got me interested in the band. And then Where the Rose is Sown is what finally did the trick. But it was Fields of Fire and the corresponding video that really hooked me in. It wasn't In a Big Country. But as you say, In a Big Country was the big song here. That was number 17- on the charts here as well and fields of fire was um like number 52 i see so uh but but the video for fields of fire was was great and played quite a bit and that's what i saw but um yeah so
1: and and uh, the superior video from that album
2: yeah i think so too yeah and interestingly enough i i read somewhere that recently that um that some of the some of that video was considered too violent for BBC television and they actually edited some of the parts out. So <laughs> be curious as to what they, Oh
5: can gosh. you believe
2: that? I mean, come on, you know, what just like a grenade toss or something, or I know that they showed like some dead bodies, like.
1: Oh, gosh, this is the 80s. I, I thought they were busy having more on heavy metal. Why do you bother with a new wave band?
2: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah,
1: ridiculous. No, but that's that's funny. I mean, I, I remember your story about the 11 o'clock TikTok and th- that that opened the door to this style of music for you. For me, it was Chance. Mm. It was one of the quieter songs that uh, that opened the door. And I thought, wow, I need to hear more of this stuff. And then the next one was, uh, was actually that I heard was Harvest Home. Interesting. interesting. The, the new version of Harvest Home, because I, for some reason, listened to Side B first. So, <laughs> that that is down to the record clerk. It could have been in a big country, but it was Harvest Home. But as it happens, I that that, that is one of my favorite songs from that album.
2: That's great. And you, you got that at a at a what we would call in America a gas station, right? Chance.
1: It was a Photoshop. A Photoshop a photographer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they had uh, all these frames on the walls and pictures and picture frames and uh, and film and photographer's equipment. And then there was a tiny tape rack in a corner. I was in there with my mom and I was looking through it and it was shite, 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 big country, the crossing. <laughs> and I, I just, I was able to make out a chance of one of the songs because that was in one of the compilation tapes. One of those greatest hits tapes that... Uh, was just
2: that's what i was referring yeah. to because didn't you like hear it you heard it on a trip or something as I, I heard it in
1: the car on that compilation tape yeah, yeah. That my dad picked up just somewhere and that was chance in there so i i recognized that when i was in a photographer shop and that was the actual crossing and that's how i picked up that one that's and that great. was the version with the two bonus tracks on each side side a and side b so i had like heart and soul angle park and uh, and some 12 inch mixes and stuff already done. That was very important to me.
2: Yeah, that's great. Funnily enough, I can't even remember when I bought the crossing. I I don't have a specific memory for that, whereas I definitely do for Steel Town. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, for like I mentioned with the playing with the soldiers, that might have been what attracted me to the Fields of Fire video as well, because it had that part of it. And again, get back to that whole boys' own thing, and I, that was kind of my mindset growing up as well. Like I had you know i love science fiction i loved um as as awful as it is to say as an adult i loved you know thinking about wars and and that that sort of um innocent feeling that you have about soldiers and the army when you're that when you're that young and you don't think about the actual um human toll of such things you know you just think of like oh i'm playing soldiers you know it's so cool
1: Yeah, you're thinking of the war movies and the glamorization of the mission
2: Right, probably exactly, yeah. exactly. And I remember a quote of Stuart, you know, talking about this, that I think I mentioned on one show, I don't even remember which one, but he, he said, like, you know, he would be horrified if he thought that people were coming to the music because of that very reason, like it was, you know, the the glorification of war and all that. And it's... It, there was so, sort of that element in it for me, you know. I have to admit, and it wasn't like I was thinking, "Oh, war." It was just like it was just something cool as a young kid, you know, with this whole World War One, World War II vibe and these adventures that people would be going on. And granted, it was it was childish, but that's how I thought at the time. So I think that's kind of what brought me, you know, with that rousing sound was just the perfect soundtrack to these images that. I was seeing on the Fields of Fire video, for example, and, and, um, that just, it just hooked me emotionally, but, yeah. but yeah, I have no, I have no real memory of buying the crossing. And, uh, as I say, I was really getting into U2 at the time and I was much more into them, but big country was fast gaining ground and they would really do that. It was Steeltown. but.
1: Right. Uh, U2 for me came many years later, I think 87 or so.
2: Mm, interesting.
1: So, uh, definitely much more uh, retrospect with them.
2: Yeah, that's when I started to go down with them after <laughs> after the Joshua Tree. That's when I – now it's like I don't even think about them.
1: Yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily following them from then point out, but that's when I started my archaeology of U2. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, U2 for me is basically 80s. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, really nothing much past there, – there's the odd song, and I always listen. I always check him out, like I do with many bands that I – are from that time you know you still check them out you wonder where are they now what they're doing now what do they sound like mm-hmm. these days yep and uh in the case of you two there's been many disappointments over the years same
2: here yeah to the point where i, I don't even re- they don't even really register for me at all anymore i mean like i would maybe go see them but um there's no emotional attachment and that's the interesting thing about big country is that you know all these years that has never waned for me oh
1: no not a bit I mean, it not waned, but there were some years I couldn't face it. Sure, sure. For obvious reason, Sure, for, for the same reason for all of us, but that's different.
2: Right. You know, a new Big Country album was always something I was, yeah, you know, couldn't wait to hear. And sure, I was disappointed in some of them, but I was always ready for more, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, and every uh, iota recorded on uh, any format somewhere needed to be obtained. Yes, exactly.
2: And I was without a doubt that way about you, too. I mean, if you would have told me as a, as a kid back in 1983 that one day I wouldn't even care much of anything about you two and what they released. I would say you were, you were nuts because I was just, you know, totally obsessive about them for a good five years or so. But, um, Mm. yeah, it it just, it kind of fizzled. So, yeah. Anyway, that's off the, off the plot here, getting out, getting off the grid, but, uh,
1: yeah, that, that's the danger of putting two old farts like us together. We, we start talking about the good old days. <laughs>
2: that's right. That's right.
1: Hey,
4: how's it going? Uh, this is Beavis, and I'm a big fan of The Crossing. <laughs> Especially that song, Fields of Fire, and that other one where they
3: use fire on a mountainside. <laughs> I hope you guys can discuss the bends constant use of fire throughout their albums but especially in the crossing
2: (laughs) using fire rules. okay so that is the precursor to our final deep dive and the next episode we're going to jump right into in a big country we're jumping into the deep end of the pool well, we've now got our scuba gear fully assembled. Our oxygen <laughs> tanks are full. And the big question is, will we run out of oxygen before this is all finished? We'll see. It's fine. You were going to ask me uh, before we started recording. You, you had a question for me about uh, a prediction for this deep dive.
1: Oh, yes. that That is absolutely correct. The, and I had forgotten. But now I, uh, I'm reminded and can ask you, what is your prediction for how long these deep dives will end up and i say that knowing that uh, the driving to damascus was 14 and a half hours
2: (laughs) um okay i'm going to say uh there's no way that this will be as long as driving to damascus no chance but (laughs) i know famous last words heard that before i'm gonna say um throwing this one into the mix uh let's see 10 songs on the crossing that's three hours per song two hours per song that's twenty. now um i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna say 10 to 10 to 12 hours tops wow tops (laughs) all right half a day basically a minimum minimum 10
1: minimum 10 and max maximum 12.
2: 12
1: okay well that's uh that's a fair estimation. A, a large one too, I would say. <laughs> that would make it officially our second longest uh, deep dive. That would just keep getting longer. So so uh, we, we, we we have the faith as usual. But uh, yeah we'll see. This this is just the intro and I think we have two and a half hours just here. So yeah. It, <laughs> the there <intro>. you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we are the we are the prog version of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's our tagline from here on out.
2: <laughs> oh.
1: oh, gosh. Well, we'll be back within a big country and onward, and uh, that's it. I'm empty already. We haven't even done a song.
2: Happy uh, happy Halloween, or happy, yes. th- happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, depending on when you're listening to this.
1: Yeah, I guess I have to say all of these things to my family, because they won't see me for any of those Except they'll see see me for this. Nobody here. (laughs) That's apt. I should just put that on my chair. (laughs) When they come looking for me, this thing will say that. (laughs) I'll be off recording or editing or preparing a deep dive.
2: Yes. All right. Well, it's it's time to listen to these songs before the next episode. Yes.
1: So let's do that. So happy Halloween to you and the rest of you. Halloween will be behind us. But uh, there are many good things to look forward to. That's right. We'll see you next time for episode 80. Bye-bye. check one more time recording so okay <clears throat> it looks like it's working just fine you're ready let's do it all right let me see i am trying to adjust this <laughs> so that it uh, so that it I, there's been so epi- some episodes where i had it too close to my mouth and you can hear breathing so clearly and then, at least those <laughs> I have I'm sitting there subconsciously Tom. adding out each breath. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you doing that <laughs> yeah, the the worst ones, but now I try to have nice. it a little below my mouth, so but hopefully it's still clear enough so okay somebody's
2: vacuuming right above me, so that's a good time. I've been muting my <laughs> microphone. <laughs>
1: I haven't been hearing anything. All right. I had a Tumblr banging behind me, but uh, it's on pause now.
2: But you might be right. Maybe there is a Chris Thomas Fields of Fire out there that we haven't heard.
1: Yeah, it's it's on the list of the songs that they uh, tried.
2: Okay, yeah. Then they must be out so, there.
1: And let me verify that. Yes, it is. Interesting. So it, wait, 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 wait. It actually isn't. Oh, okay. It actually isn't, so I'm going to edit that out. It might—they might not have a Chris Thomas version on that. They, they might have, um, yeah, because they didn't complete those uh, sessions, so they might have um, intended to get to it, but that's spe- speculation again. All right. So never mind that. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> I save oh, you my. again.
1: Yes, <laughs> well, I did I did, I did I did actually I did actually check myself. I've learned to do it. I will go out balls out, and then I will check myself and quickly withdraw
2: before you wreck yourself, yes, as they say before
1: I soil myself <laughs> all right, cool. I'm beginning to admit i'm- I'm beginning to realize that you don't see much of home that you Jesus Christ all right, I'm off to scare people.
2: all right, have a good one,
1: yeah. Bye-bye.
2: All right. Bye. 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 We are the prog version of podcasts.